So we're starting our Advent series this week. That means, uh, as highlighted in our Advent ceremony, Advent means uh, to come. It's a celebration of the arrival of Jesus. And we are not just celebrating the season of Christmas. We're celebrating the Savior who Christmas is all about. And we don't want to get weird about it. We're not going to get strange about it. We're not going to be mad at Starbucks cups. We're not going to, we're not going to create, we're not going to throw a fit when somebody says seasons, greetings, or happy holidays on their glass, right, of their restaurant. Just enjoy the art, right? Let's not get upset or bent out of shape about that. Why would we expect non-Christians to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ? any more than I expect, you know, somebody who doesn't know me to celebrate my birthday. Right? They're not celebrating my birthday in Texas when it was my birthday. If you don't know me, I mean, even if you know me, you probably won't celebrate my birthday. (laughs) Right? Why do we expect people who are uncomfortable with Jesus to be so excited about Jesus? I'm just saying it's a little funny. I don't celebrate Mohammed's birth. And so let's just not get bent out of shape about silly things. But what we can do is in our own time and with our own energy and with our own resources, with our faith, we can get more excited about Jesus than anybody else is about Santa. I'm not going to rail against people getting mad at the economy. Oh, it's it's become a, a, a holiday about the money. Well, good. Business is needed. Get in the black. That's why it was called Black Friday. Make your money. Stay in business. I like those clothes. I need those shoes. I can't get mad, but I can't make it about it in my own soul. I can't let my own heart go there. And so we should primarily guard our hearts and see if we can make a big deal out of Jesus in our homes. Make a big deal out of Jesus in our relationships and celebrate with, with sweetness and reverence the birth of our Savior. Uh, It's easy to forget that being on this side of the birth of Jesus, that there was a time where Jesus had not yet been born. There's never been a time that Jesus did not exist. And I'm going to talk about that during during the message as a a point today. But there's never been a time that Jesus didn't exist, but there has been a time that Jesus hadn't been born. The first reference that we hear about the coming of Jesus was in, is in Genesis chapter 3. And there's an, a shadowed allusion to a Messiah coming, to a Savior coming who is going to set everything right. But then between Adam and the time that Jesus was born, there were almost 4,000 years. And so there's these, over those 4,000 years, there's all of these promises. There's a Messiah coming. There's a Savior coming. There's a kingdom coming. There's a person coming, and he's going to make everything right. And there was this anticipation, this deep longing for the consolation of Israel. It was a deep longing for God to come and make right everything for his chosen people. And he was going to do that. But us on the backside of Christmas, we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that happened. And sometimes we miss out on the longing that comes along with the Advent season. Because we're already familiar. We're already casual. We're already kind of ambivalent about the fact that he came. And so I would, I would encourage you during this Advent season, even as we go through this series, to, to, to remember what would it be like if I didn't know what I know now about Jesus? For those of you who are, who are Christians, you've been walking with Jesus for a long time. Don't just, don't just gloss through the season because we're going to be looking at familiar passages. But wrestle with the thought, what would it be like if, if there was a promise of salvation coming and I hadn't yet experienced it yet? 
and be okay with a little bit of discomfort in those questions. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, maybe you're here and you're just trying to figure things out and, or somebody, somebody brought you here and, and you're, you're just being a good friend and, and you plan on never coming back again. <laughs> maybe at least this week you could hear something freshly and go, oh, I didn't know. That's what the birth of Jesus was really about. I didn't know that it actually has significance and meaning for my life today and tomorrow. And, and it has significance for, for my eternity. Like it's important for us now. It's not, it, they are real people. Jesus was really born. He really lived. He really died and he really rose from the dead. But it's not just as Stephen Mansfield calls it, uh, facts and dead people. Right? It's not just something that occurred back there that has no meaning for us now, but it's something that has the greatest significant meaning for us now. And then I'm getting ahead of myself. All right, so Christmas is so much more than, than what we make it, and so don't just gloss through it. Today, I'm, we're going to be looking at a very familiar passage of Scripture. It's one of the most popular passages of Scripture uh, in, in relating to Advent and relating to Christmas. Um, if, if the passage is familiar, I want to encourage you to... Again, don't gloss over this. Don't just, don't just get through the sermon and be like, oh yeah, yeah, I know these things. But ask God to reveal to you what, uh, in a fresh way how you can respond to what is true in, in faith. Um, we're looking at Isaiah chapter 9. If you don't know it from, from the Bible or from church, you probably know it from Charlie Brown's Christmas. Before we get to the, to the passage I'm going to read, it's going to be Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7. I just want to give you some context for this, for this prophecy, for this promise that we're going to look at today. Isaiah opens with a gloomy report. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, and basically there was this good king and there were a whole bunch of really bad kings. And so they were like, the only good guys dead were doomed. That's how this opens up. And then we progress a little bit further and stuff was going to go from bad to worse because in the hardness of times, people's response was not to return to God and say, God, this is hard. Will you save us? It was, God, this is hard. Forget you. And we've all, we've all done that. I mean, we can't judge them too sternly because I know that in my life, sometimes it's like, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. And then you say it and you're like, dang, I said it. And then you're like, don't say anymore. Well, you're like, I already said it. I might as well go all in. Right? Damage is already done. Might as well just trash the place. Um, I used to do a thing where, like, if I dropped my cell phone, I would kick it. It was like this reflex. It was just this angry reflex. It was like, it was like, dang. You know, and it was like, why did I just drop and then kick my cell phone? I broke a lot of cell phones in a short amount of time. And God used that to teach me self-control. Now I kick it in my mind and in my heart. He's cleansing me. It's called sanctification. It's a process that we go through after we're saved where God makes us less like we are and more like him. But we've all been there. And so they doubled down on their sin because they're mad at God and things were getting harder. And so they doubled down on their sin. And then in, at the end of chapter eight, right before this passage, we're going to look at, they get, they get the really bad news. It says they'll pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the doom of anguish. And they will be thrust into a, they will be 
they will all, uh, and they will be thrust into a thick darkness. And then with that as the backdrop, with these warnings of darkness and gloom and hunger and rebellion and pain and sorrow, with all of that as the backdrop, we get to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word and God's promise for us. Father, help us today to get excited about your drawing near to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So right in the midst of all this darkness, we're going to hear a remarkable promise. It's going to take another 600 years to be accomplished before Jesus is born. I want to just encourage anybody who's in darkness that we can find hope in these passages we're about to study together. It was a word for specific people at a specific time. And that's the meaning. That's the original intent. And we need to look at that. And we are. But we also are going to mine out its application for us today and what the promise means for us right now. The first thing I want to do is look at this opening phrase. For for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. It sounds redundant. It sounds like it's the same thing stated uh, twice in a row. But really, there are two distinctions being made and two distinctions that are very important to our theology. Theology is just our study of God. Our, it's our belief of God and our doctrine or is our belief statements or our beliefs about God. And, and it's two, two, um, two statements that look the same, but they're making important distinctions. And, and these are them. These are those two distinctions. A child will be born is speaking of the human baby that's going to be born by Mary. Jesus was not conceived in Mary's womb by natural means, by, by Joseph, who, who became Jesus' father on earth. He was conceived, Jesus was, conceived in the womb supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. And then from there... Jesus grew as a fetus and came all the way to birth and was birthed through the normal process, the normal human process. And we'll talk about that on on Christmas Eve, but that happened in a barn. And so he went through this remarkably natural process after being supernaturally put there. But it, it is incredibly important that Jesus be recognized as being flesh because these these verses, what it does is it deals with uh, lies that would be told about Jesus 600, 700 years later, and it's already dealing with them. They weren't just looking for a spiritual king. It was going to be a natural king as well. It wasn't just going to be a spiritual entity like a spirit, but it was going to be someone who was, who was flesh. 
It was going to be someone who was birthed through the line of succession where the kings came from who were ruling in, over, the, over the Hebrews, over the Hebrew people, over the Jewish people. And, and it was going to come through a certain line and he was going to be born a certain way. And that was really, really important because it could put to death the, the lies that would be told about him after the fact. People want to be like, oh, Jesus was a spiritual entity, but he wasn't a man. Not true. And people want to say that he's a man, but not a spiritual person. And that's not true either. And that's going to be dealt with in this next statement that a son will be given. What this verse isn't saying is that Jesus has a, has a starting point in the womb. So unlike you and I, when, when we are conceived, that's the beginning of our life. And it's a spiritual, natural kind of moment where we are created, where we become. We weren't, and now we are. It wasn't that way for Jesus. Jesus has always existed in the Trinity as the Son. So from the very beginning of time, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, that whole thing about Jesus. He was there in the very beginning, and he spoke things into creation. He's preeminent over all of creation. He was there before it. He stands over it, and he rules in it, and will continue to at the end. So, so, he, so he is eternal, right? So he wasn't created in Mary's womb. Because if he was created, he's not God. And so it's kind of a cool prophecy because 600 years before it happens, it's like there's going to be this natural child that's existed forever that's going to be born from a woman. Does that make sense? Did that answer a question for anybody? That, that, that Jesus wasn't created in that moment. He had always existed. And him being given as a son was him coming as the third part of the Trinity well, I'm using a lot of theological terms today. Is it troublesome? That, so the Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they exist together. And, and they have distinctives, but you can't separate them from each other. And they're mutually submitted to one another and glorifying kind of around. It's like a, just it, it all glorifies God together. He is a Godhead. He's up there and he exists at all times in complete unity with himself. So unlike Hinduism that doesn't have a Godhead and God is just kind of everywhere and, and, and nowhere at the same time, God is, God is in a very real way in a specific place completely together and everywhere. Anyway. Um, but there wasn't a beginning to Jesus' life because Jesus had always existed. And now he was going to be set in Mary's womb and he was going to be born. The way, this, um, the way that Paul summarizes this, this event, he says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, he says, the idea, uh, he says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. And simply paraphrases or restates the same idea, but now on the back end with the clarity of how it actually happened. So Isaiah is speaking of it. Hey, this thing's going to happen. And then now Paul's speaking about it on the other side. And he said, hey, this thing just happened. A child will be born. A son will be given. Isaiah is saying over here 600 years before. And now Paul's saying 50 years later, he's saying in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son born of a woman. Echoing the same thing. The bottom line is just at the right time, Jesus broke onto the scene. 
Paul, uh, Isaiah was telling the people, hey, there's going to be a great darkness, but there's going to be an even greater light that comes. On this side, when we're in darkness, we can know that the greater light has already come. For us, it's not a matter of hoping for something that hasn't come yet. It's a matter of accepting the one who's already come. If I was preaching today, preaching, if I was preaching, I would stop and I'd say, some of y'all are in the darkness of loneliness and you're in the darkness of hurt. You're in the darkness of understanding. You're in the darkness of your own kingdom. But God wants to come in and bring light. In the fullness of time, when things look the darkest, God wants to come in and bring perspective and hope and joy and and gladness and, and, and a fulfillment that you've looked for every other place, but you can't seem to find it. The relationships didn't satisfy. The clubs didn't satisfy. The drugs didn't satisfy. The the money didn't satisfy. The lack of money didn't satisfy. Planting all those trees didn't satisfy. Saving puppies didn't satisfy. Right? Whatever those things are, they bring the temporary gladness that Keith was talking about that burns out when more pain comes instead of rises to the occasion and can trump those pains. That's the great thing about the gospel and the love of God that that no matter how big my problems grow or how chaotic things can get, God God always overshadows it. His light is always brighter than the darkness that I face. And that's what he wants to bring from you. Son will be given. It speaks to the Savior's deity. He existed Long before his birth, long before his conception, before the beginning of time, he was, and now he's just taking on human flesh. Because he had to be born like you and me so he could experience everything that you and I experience. But can you imagine how condescending that is? Like, we barely want to, like, you get demoted. Like, let's talk about Thanksgiving. You don't want to get demoted to the kids' table. Like if you get demoted to the kid's table, it's because it's you're messy. <laughs> Jesus has supreme, supreme rulership of the universe and he got demoted to being a baby in a barn. He got demoted to being told what to do by people. Not demoted, he condescended, he, he volunteered to the job. Oh, that's amazing to me. This baby wouldn't stay, baby. He would carry the weight of the government on his shoulders and carry influence forever. We give him some names. Isaiah gives him some names in this passage. He's going to be called Wonderful Counselor. The word wonderful here is translated, or the word translated as wonderful means extraordinary, hard to be understood. God's hard to be understood, isn't it sometimes? 
in his dealings with you in the state of the world, in the state of your own life, in the state of your family. It, it can be hard to understand. But he's not just wonderful. He's the wonderful counselor. And he brings wisdom and insight and perspective and hope. And in, in, in 1 Corinthians uh, in First Corinthians, I think it's chapter one. He says that uh, Paul says that the foolishness of God is wiser than human than the, than wisdom human uh, than human wisdom. It's like the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So the wonderful counsel of God sometimes doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us, but we can know and have confidence that it's enduring and it's going to last forever. And he does, he does what he does with full knowledge of the situation. My kids, the light's turning on in their head about discipline because we just got a puppy. And, and they were like, Daddy, how do, why does the puppy follow you? I said, because I drag it. Because the puppy just wants to stay on the porch and it doesn't want to go out in the yard. And we know that the puppy needs to pee, so I'm going to drag it off into the grass. Right? And they were like, but she doesn't want to go. I was like, I know, but she needs to go. Or she's going to go in the house and then we got to clean that up. And that's worse than you're going in the grass. So that's what we do. We, just, we, we pull her even though she doesn't want to go. And it was like, oh, like you do with us. I was like, you're getting it. And now you got to do it to her, to the puppy. And they're like, it's hard to give people what they need instead of what they want. They said, well, they didn't say people, but puppy. But it's hard to give people what they need instead of what they want. But God and his wonderful counselor, as the wonderful counselor, will always give us what he needs because he has all the information. He knows we're going to pee on the carpet, basically, is what I just said. (laughs) And he doesn't want us to do that. He's the mighty God. Power and influence that has no boundaries except those set by love and justice and righteousness and compassion and mercy and, and his, his all-surpassing uh, grace. The boundaries are himself. And he's held in this perfect tension of wrath and mercy in a way that none of us are able to do it. We can pretty much express wrath or mercy one at a time and then feel bad about it either way. <laughs> But he holds himself in perfect tension at all times across all of his attributes. He's called the Everlasting Father. Now, it's not confusing. He's not, he's, it is, his name is Jesus, and he's being called the Everlasting Father. And the idea is that uh, it's, not to meant, it's not meant to confuse that there's a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit. It's a designation that, that is intended to highlight his authority it's not intended to say he's, he's Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit or anything like that. Does that make sense? Some people believe that, the Holy, that God exists in one form at a time, that he is the Father and then he was the Son and now he is the Holy Spirit. And he, it's called modalism and he, and he changes form. But the reality is he exists as all three all the time. And so that's not what that was. And then he's called the Prince of Peace. I was confused by this phrase, Prince of Peace, because a prince, we understand that as somebody who isn't in authority yet, typically, don't we? He's like the son of the one who's in charge, and all he can do is throw fits and want to be in charge, but he has no authority yet, so he can't. 
So he tries to kill off his father, and then he, you know, that's how it happens in the movies. Not how it happened with Jesus. But that's a new understanding of what a prince is or how a prince rules or what a prince's responsibilities are. A prince used to represent the highest authority in all the land. So when we say he's the prince of peace, don't imagine him as a lesser power than God the Father or a lesser power than his title that he's given later as king. This title, Prince of Peace, puts him at equal with any high title of king or ruler or, or emperor. In fact, uh, some of the rulers, some of the emperors of the time were, were given a title similar to prince. He has the ability to insert peace into any situation, especially when chaos wants to reign. Hebrews 12, 28 says that, therefore, let us be grateful because we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And therefore, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for God is a consuming fire. This kingdom of peace that he rules over will know no end It had no future. It will have no end. And he's inviting us into it. You came in today a citizen of some kingdom. Maybe you're the ruler of that kingdom. Maybe money is the ruler of your kingdom or your job or your boss, your dog is the ruler of your kingdom. What Jesus wants to do in this Christmas season is, is invite you into his kingdom of heaven. He wants to invite you into a, a, a kingdom, into a reality where he reigns, where he will be your wonderful counselor, where he, where he will be your mighty God, where he will be your everlasting and good father, and where he will be your prince of peace That's the invitation. So as we go and buy gifts and as we go to Christmas parties and do decorations and do all of these things and get so busy with all the life, don't miss staying in a a position of being a citizen of his kingdom. To be a citizen of this kingdom of heaven, to be a follower of Jesus, we just have to repent. We have, to, we have to turn from the thing. We have to turn from running from him. Change our mind and turn back to him. And I'll just illustrate and then we'll, then we'll close. Caitlin, can you come up? And what, we're, what we see is that we're going this way. I'm ruling my kingdom. I'm setting the priorities. I'm setting the highlight reel. I'm, I'm deciding what's important and what's not important. I'm going my way and my time and my order in tolerating any of God's influence in my life. Or sometimes just completely rejecting it. And what God is calling us to do is to turn toward him and to turn into pursuit of him. And say, God, I'm not going to do it my way anymore. I want to do it your way. It's humbling. Because when we turn around, what's funny is you're going to realize the second you turn, he didn't wait for you way over there. He's standing right here. 
And all he wants is for you to be able to admit where you are. God, I'm broken. I've been doing things my way. I've been uh, living in opposition to you. I've been making up my own rules. I've been doing life my way. Whatever that means. And confess, God, you're good. And I, I recognize that you love me. And I surrender to you. I receive your forgiveness. As I must be, we could say we could accept where we are, believe that he is, he is Lord, and that he wants to save you from yourself. Confess that he's good. Receive his forgiveness. If you want to do that today, can you all just, can we just close our eyes and, and pray together? If you, want to, if you want to move from your kingdom or the kingdom of someone else into the kingdom of heaven, in Jesus Christ, can you raise your hand? I want to pray with you today. See that hand? See that hand? If you raise your hands, you can put them down. Just pray with me. God, this morning I surrender. I acknowledge, I admit, I'm, I've... I've been on the wrong path and doing things my way. Today I surrender. I receive your forgiveness. Teach me to walk in your love and in your power. Give me the courage to follow you, to pursue you. And learn what it means to be a disciple. In Jesus' name, amen.